If you will, grab a Bible and open up to Luke chapter 23. So we've been working our way through the seven statements that Jesus made while he was nailed to the cross, seven distinct uh, statements. And next Sunday, uh, on Easter Sunday morning, we'll be celebrating the resurrection, uh, but we'll also be considering the words that that Christ spoke to the criminal on the cross next to him. When when Jesus says, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in, in paradise. And so we've actually got one more set of these words to do next week. But this morning we're looking at what is Jesus' very last statement from the cross before his death. Uh, Once again, we're going to uh, read the wider context but focus our attention on on Jesus' words alone uh, today, just to give you some aspect of this. But uh, So let's uh, look with our eyes, let's hear with our ears this passage before us, Luke chapter 23 beginning in verse 44. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. And Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now, when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home, beating their breasts. And all the acquaintances, the women who had followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance watching these things. The grass withers and the flower fades. Let's pray. Lord, this is your word. And this morning we ask that you would open our eyes to behold wondrous things in it. We ask that by your Holy Spirit you would apply them to our hearts so that we would understand the gospel, so that we would understand your saving purposes, and so that we would understand how to live and how to die with genuine hope and trust in you, our glorious God. All these things we ask in the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Well, I'll tell you, uh, between... uh, doing my first funeral this week and between Sam and Stephen's accident last week where God graciously spared their lives uh, death has been on my mind a lot lately Uh, on top of that we've actually been spending all this time you know six Sundays now in a row where we have been focusing uh, on these last words of Jesus upon the cross, you know. This is something that took place over a mere six hours in, in history in real time, and yet six hours, folk, or six Sundays focusing on this. And today is the final statement. You know, after this, Jesus, the Son of God, dies. Truly dies. And these are his last words until after the resurrection. I, uh, I've always been intrigued by people's last words. They're, they're often written down and recorded. Uh, Pancho Villa, the Mexican revolutionary's last words were, some friends he has, don't let it end like this. Tell them I said something. And so they quoted him exactly. Dominique Bohors, who was a French grammarian, uh, gr- grammar, his last statement was quite humorously, I am about to or I'm going to die. Either expression is correct. The last words of Oscar Wilde, the poet and the playwright, were either the wallpaper goes or I go. His actual last words. And, and while author Francis Rebellius said, I owe much, 
I have nothing, the rest I leave to the poor. Uh, there's a, a great story from the, the, the Civil War, or as some of you Southerners might call it, the War of Northern Aggression. You're wrong, by the way. Uh, <clears throat> but the Union General John Sedwick was, was shot and killed right after this phrase came out of his mouth. They couldn't hit an elephant at this distance. Clearly they could. Some of these are, are humorous things, but you know, a lot of last words reflect on a lot of regrets in people's life. David Cassidy, you young people have no idea who he is. Just think Justin Bieber for the previous generation. Um, Partridge family fame. He came to the end of his life by simply saying, so much wasted time. You can hear the, the regret in that. Karl Marx said, go on, get out. Last words are for fools who haven't said enough. And Steve Jobs, who died in 2011, it's hard to believe it's already been seven years, but uh, his last words were, were merely, oh, wow, oh, wow, oh, wow. Buddha's last statement has led many people astray. Buddha's last statement was, work hard to gain your own salvation. It's very different from the last words of our Savior that are recorded in this passage here. Jesus, before he breathes his last breath, Jesus says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. This is God incarnate, dwelling among men and women and children, put to death by the very people whom he created, the very creation whom he came to redeem, to gather this people for himself forever. This question, though, you know, how, how does God end up on a cross? How does the, the Son of God end up on a cross uttering these last words? I'll tell you, there's a, there's a parable that Jesus teaches in Mark chapter 12. Uh, and this parable is about this, this man who builds a vineyard and he puts up the walls and, and he puts everything together. And then the man leaves the country and he leases this vineyard out to, to tenants who are to farm the land. And, and the agreement is they'll give something at the end, a portion of it. Later, the owner of the vineyard sent a servant to collect some of the fruit. But the tenants decided they would beat the servant instead. And they sent him away with absolutely nothing. And so the, the owner of the, the vineyard sends another tenant or another servant who goes to the tendon and they beat him. The one after that they kill and more were sent and some they beat and some they killed. And so finally the, the owner of the vineyard sends his own son and the evil tendons had this to say. They said, this is their heir. This is the heir. Come let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours. They killed the son. And then they, you know, Jesus asked the Pharisees, who he's speaking to presumably here, he says, what will the owner of the vineyard do? And Jesus answers the question for them. Jesus says, he will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Well, this parable actually covers a couple things. First, this is a parable about people who are discontent with what God has given them, people who instead want to be God themselves, and so they seek to remove God from his rightful place as, as ruler here. There's also a, a parable about the Jewish leaders and how Jesus has ended up upon this death device, upon this cross on this day, rejected by the same Jewish people that God has been providing for for so many years over and over again. But this parable also makes for us uh, crystal clear for us that, that Jesus knew that his life was going to end. He knew how it was going to end. He even knew that it was going to end upon a cross. He's, he is the son whom they kill. And Jesus has been preparing for his death all this while. 
And so while Jesus' death is surprising to, to those who are present, to the crowds, to the disciples, it's not surprising to Jesus at all. He knows it's coming. He knew exactly what was going to happen. And, and now he knows this is the point where his body and his spirit are going to be separated. His human soul departs his body. If you've ever been to a funeral where there's an open casket and you, you looked at the body of someone you knew, a relative or a friend, I know it's hard to put into words, but, but you probably experience the same thing. You, you look at them and you see that it's their body, and yet somehow you can tell something's not right here. It's not really them. It's not, their, their soul is missing from their body, and you can just tell, even though it's hard to, to put into really words to explain it. That's what we're seeing about to happen here. But, but before Jesus departs, he says these words, Father, into your hands... I commit my spirit. When we read the passage uh, you know, earlier, did you notice this little detail regarding the volume of, of Christ's voice? You know, we, we kind of expected, even though it says right there in the passage that it was a, a loud voice, we kind of expect that it was some sort of a whisper or something, but it, it wasn't. It was a, a loud voice. And the reason is that, that we've said this in the past weeks, but Jesus is in control. It's not a faint whisper. He has strength to speak loudly in this moment. He truly lays down his own life, and that is very significant. Also, Luke could have written that, that after this, Jesus died, and we'd all know what he meant, but, but he words it very interesting. He writes, uh, he writes, he breathed his last. It's almost like Luke is showing us that, that Jesus at this point just decides to quit breathing. This is it. And that absolutely fits with what Jesus said in John 10, 11, where he says, I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Or John 10, 17 through 18, where it further shows us this, where Jesus says, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, and that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. Jesus' life was not taken from him. His life was given by himself. So these last words of Jesus, if you've got a, a reference Bible, you can probably see it tells you that it's a, a referencing back to Psalm 31.5. You can hear the echo there completely, but there is a, a significant difference between what the psalmist writes and what Jesus actually says. The psalmist says, Into your hand... I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. Did you catch that? The, the psalmist, how's, how's he address God? He calls him God. He calls him uh, faithful God. He calls him Lord. But how does Jesus address God? He says, Father. There's something more significant there. He's, he's back in communion with the Father, for one. The forsakenness is over. That Jesus aggresses God as his father was, was unique at this time because Jews viewed it as way too intimate, way too personal to call God uh, a father. And yet Jesus, over and over and over again, beginning from his first trip to Jerusalem with his parents, you remember, uh, where was he? He was in his father's house. Uh, he's been calling God his father over and over again. You, you read through the Gospels and over again he's saying, Father, Father, Father. These words in our passage are, uh, are then this spoken act of contentment. It shows faith. It shows confidence. It shows love to the Father by Jesus the Son. Jesus is trusting him with, with everything. 
Do you find it amazing? It's a vague statement, right? But do you find it amazing that if our faith is in Jesus, then his father, Jesus' father, is also our father? And those aren't just flippant words that mean something. I mean, how amazing is it that we can speak to God in prayer and rightly address him as father? Rightly call him Heavenly Father or, or Abba Father. Uh, I, I taught high school some years ago, and there was a girl in, in one of my classes. Uh, I had her for many years, and she routine, routinely began her prayers saying, Daddy. And I, to be honest, cringed the first time I heard that. Somehow it didn't seem right to me. But I, I quickly saw that these words reflected rightly the, the closeness that we have with God as, as his children. Children who are welcomed into his family through union with Christ. Daddy is an appropriate word to begin a prayer with for us as children. In John 17, 23, Jesus says to God the Father regarding us, he says, you loved them even as you loved me. That's amazing. Or or as 1 John 3, 1 tells us, uh, further proves that through the gospel we have become beloved children. Listen, it says this, it says, see what kind of love the Father has given us? that we should be called children of God. And so we are. Christian, you not only can call God your Father, you should call God your Father, because He is. There's an interesting contrast here in our passage as we look at it today. Uh, Jesus has voluntarily delivered Himself into the hands of men. He, he even tells this to His disciples ahead of time. In Matthew 17, 22 and 23, He says, The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. Or, or again, speaking to the disciples in Matthew 26, 45, Jesus says, uh, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed. Where? He is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Do you see the contrast in our passage today? Because Christ's body, you know, his body he has delivered into the hands of men who, who handle it with anger, with violence, but his spirit he, he delivers into the hands of his Father, who he trusts will handle it with love, with comfort. Huge contrast there. This is not only true for Jesus as, as his son, but it's true for every Christian, every, every elect child of God who can, you know, we can trust God. We, we can trust God the Father with every single aspect of our life. Jesus has, has trusted his spirit to the Father's hands. And, uh, you know, at death, quite naturally, and the reason he can do so is that his entire life, he has trusted every aspect, every step of his life in the Father's hands. What, what about us? What, what about you? I mean, have you trusted your eternal soul into the hands of, of God the Father? The Apostle Paul wrote in 2 Timothy 1.12 about his trust in God. He writes, and he's writing to young young Timothy, a young man. He says, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Paul is talking about two things. He's talking about the message of the gospel, but he's also talking about his own life, his own faith. And and listen, Christian, if, if you've trusted in the Lord, then your soul is in good hands. Um, I know it's, it's kind of like the, the Allstate motto, right? You're in good hands with Allstate. I don't know if you're in good hands with Allstate. I don't know that we have Allstate, but uh, I honestly don't know. Um, <laughs> but, but I do know this. I, I know that, 
If you have trusted your, your soul into the hands of the Lord, that it is absolutely in safe hands. There is, there is eternal security in his hands because his hands are, are so mighty, so strong. So much so that Jesus can say of Christians in, in John 10, 29, he says, My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one, right? No one, no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hands. It's like a, a small child, right? They tend to be selfish with their stuff, but when they realize that someone wants to take their stuff, they'll take it to their parents, and you take it, you know? There's this understanding that someone stronger, someone mightier than them can protect it better. See, when we realize that, that not only our souls, but our lives are safer in the hands of God, it, it helps us to resist that, uh, that instinct that we have where we want to control everything in our life. You know, my, my life is safer in the hands of the Lord. So what's it look like to commit your lives into the hands of God? It, it means that we, we trust Him to provide what we need. Uh, financially, relationally, every aspect of our life. It means we, we trust Him to protect us, to encourage our hearts. We trust Him to comfort us in trials, to discipline us when we're in sin, to sustain us when we are in suffering. Committing our, our lives into His hands means you know, living for the glory of God on, on Mondays when we're beginning this week, and it just seems, uh, it, it means asking him to give you strength for the day ahead when it's 2 a.m. and your, your baby would rather scream than sleep. It, it means we, we live for his glory, which, which might lead us to a, a career that can be less than maybe you imagined it to, to be, right? So you can spend more time in, in ministry, and sometimes by ministry we just mean discipling your own family. It might mean living in a place that's not as nice as maybe you hoped you'd live so that you might be this, this gospel light, this, this, uh, this gospel presence in a place uh, where no one else could be it, where no one else is it. It might mean being contently single longer than your heart desires. It might affect your possessions, as how much entertainment you consume. It might simply just affect the ways that we spend our money that God has given us. We, we, we need then to, to know this truth, right? That as Christians, the life we live is not our own. I mean, that's why it's so easy to put our lives in the hands of God. It's not our own. We, we were bought with a price. We were bought with the blood of Christ. We, we know that, that we cannot escape the sovereign will of God in our lives, right? But, but have you willingly placed your life into the hands of the Lord? Right? There's a difference there. You know, God, my, my life is yours, God, for your purposes, for your glory, and I trust you with it, whatever that looks like. Are those words you can say something like that? Listen, here on the cross in this moment, we are learning that um, there, there can be a blessed communion with God even when the circumstances around our life feel like an F5 tornado has just blown through and, and ruined everything you might imagine. You, you listen to what God says in Hebrews 13.5. He says, I will never leave you or forsake you. We saw that Christ was forsaken, but... Because of Christ's sacrifice, because of his forsakenness, God will never leave you or forsake you. Let us trust the Lord, especially in those moments of, of suffering. Uh, as 1 Peter 4.19 encourages, saying, Let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. You hear what that means? Christians 
you will suffer. When, when God redeems you, he doesn't just remove all suffering from your life. That might be the way we'd want him to draw it up, uh, but he doesn't. You will suffer. But what we learn here in the gospel with Christ is that we never suffer alone. Never alone. One more obvious application of this passage, and, and then we'll be done. We, we don't know the details of our death. We don't. You have no idea how it's going to happen. You don't know if it's going to be cancer, if it's going to be an accident, a heart attack, martyrdom, some freak accident, whatever it might be. But, but we do know this. We know that it's coming. We know that it's certain. And Jesus here sets this precedent for us. Jesus here has taught us how to live in his life, and in his death he is teaching us how to die. The first thing we all need to know then is that if you've not trusted your soul to God... You are in grave danger. And I don't say that to be dramatic. I don't say that to be fire and brimstone pastor. I, I, I say that to be as truthful as God's word. Hebrews 9.27 reveals this to us. It says, It is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. We all will die, and then we will face judgment. We didn't all commit the sins of Hitler or Mussolini, but we have all sinned, and so every one of us are rendered guilty at the judgment. And the punishment of that guilt will be poured out upon us unless Jesus stands in our place. Unless the only innocent one stands in our place at that time. If your faith is in Jesus Christ, then he has taken the punishment for you. He has uh, given his righteousness to you. That's the only way you can pass this judgment. There's, there's no other way, but, but this is offered freely in the gospel. No other way, but absolutely freely in the gospel, such that you can trust the Lord today. Hebrews 10.31 says, It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. That seems contrary to what we've been seeing, right? But the truth is, for while the unbeliever should fear their soul falling into the hands of our holy God, for, for those who by faith in Jesus are forgiven and have been made children of God, there is truly no safer place to be than in your Father's hands, God's hands. And, and so, Christian, that's why you can learn from Jesus here how to die well. Jesus' suffering is an example to us. It's so much more than an example. It's not merely an example, but it is indeed also an example. First Peter 2.21 makes that much clear to us when we read this. It says, uh, for to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his footsteps. And so we not only look to Jesus for how to live our lives, but we are looking to him for how to die. And so I hope at least occasionally in your life, you, you pray to God, you have this, this conversation with God, you know, Lord, teach me how to die well. Teach me how to die well. We, we, we want to... Push against the fear that, that impending death brings to our hearts. Right? I'm not saying you're not going to fear it. Of course you're going to fear it. But I'm saying you, you, you go to the Lord with this. You take these fears to the Lord. You learn to, to push against these natural fears. A.W. Pink once wrote, Death may be the king of terrors to the unsaved, but to the Christian death is simply the door which admits into the presence of the well-beloved. And by well-beloved, he means the Lord. 
What we learn in the gospel and here on the cross is that, that Jesus has secured victory over death, and so this means that we no longer need to be terrified of death. We really don't. We, we can say like Paul in, in 1 Corinthians 15, 55 through 57, Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, death, where is your, or, or death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. There's victory over death. To, to not fear, again, will be an ongoing battle for us, but death truly is nothing to fear for those who are safely in the hands of the Lord. J.C. Ryle, one of my favorite authors, says this. He wrote this. He said, uh, There is a sense in which the Lord's word supplies a lesson to all true Christians. They show us the manner in which death should be met by all God's children. They afford an example which every believer should try to follow. Like our master, we should not be afraid to confront the king of terrors, death, we should regard death as a vanquished enemy whose sting has been taken away by Christ's death. We should think of him as a foe who can hurt our body for a little while, but after that, there's nothing more he can do. We should await his approaches with calmness and patience and believe that when our flesh fails, our souls will be in good keeping. That was the mind of the Apostle Paul when, at the time of his departure, was at hand. He said, I know whom I am believed, and I am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed to him. The first Christian martyr followed the example of Christ as well. Do you know who the first Christian martyr, martyr was? Uh, it's in the book of Acts, and it's, it's Stephen. Um, and you can hear this echo of, of Christ's words when, uh, when it's recorded Stephen's death. In Acts 7.59 it reads, And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And that was his comfort at the, the time of death. It's been an example for, for many Christians throughout history. I remember reading years ago about the death of Lady Jane Grey. Um, she's not the person the T is named after, completely different. Lady Jane Grey was an 18-year-old girl who was a, a Protestant. And uh, in 19, or not 19, 1553, she was chosen to be the Queen of England, 18 years old. Her reign lasted a mere nine days as, as Mary, the Mary who's commonly known as Bloody Mary, uh, took over and sentenced her to death, uh, death by beheading with an axe. Uh, Jane was pretty amazing in a lot of ways as she faced this, this time in her life. She, she had a 19-year-old sister who she wrote a letter to while she was awaiting the actual execution after already being sentenced. Uh, and she writes this to her sister, and she says, Live to die that by death you may enter into eternal life and then enjoy the life that Christ has gained for you by his death. Don't think that just because you are now young, your life will be long, because young and old die as God wills. It's an 18-year-old girl writing that. We're closing our story, though, with Lady Jane here because she is just a glorious example of someone who looked at how Christ died and followed her example in her death because... On the day of her execution, after placing her own head upon the block, as she awaited the axe, she, she repeated the words of Jesus on the cross, almost. She says, Lord, into thy hands I commend my spirit. Lord, into thy hands I commend my spirit. Lord, into thy hands I commend my spirit. And then the executioner swung the axe, and Jane's body was dead. But her soul, her, her soul 
was safe in the hands of God her Father, her Lord. See, like Jesus trust his Father at his hour of death, so too we can trust our Heavenly Father at our hour of death. The Lord gives us in this passage, in these last words, the last thing we really need for the Christian life. He teaches us how to die well. How to die even for the glory of God. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for these specific words spoken from the cross calling us to see beyond death. Calling us to trust our souls into your care. Lord, please give faith to all who lack it this morning. Work redemption in their hearts. And Lord, please strengthen the faith of all your children present this morning. Work all that we have learned today into our hearts. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.